We remain vigilant. We remain prepared. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield and it sent a strong message to terrorists around the world. We will come after you and find you. Oh, yeah. The global war on terror. Still going and going and going. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth five days a week. And I think the middle swath of the country could probably use a blanket today. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, well, where, where was I? Blanketing Planet five days a week. I'm your fa- uh, your uh, your favorite uh, host, uh, Brad Friedman. Your friendly <laughs> investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around pretty swell fellow. Says me Can't from be? from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, you can tell we're already having fun, aren't we? Uh, We have got a lot of varied stuff to get to today that I hope I can get to, including a few updates on some stories we've covered recently and a Green News report to make it all better. Yes. Or worse. We do our best. (laughs) But uh, we will begin today with Al Jazeera's perspective on what happened overnight last night and their reporting from on the ground in Syria. At least 13 people, including six children, have been killed during a United States Special Operations Forces raid in Syria's rebel-held Idlib province. According to residents and first responders, Idlib province in northwestern Syria is the last rebel-held stronghold in the war-torn country, mostly controlled by a former al-Qaeda affiliate. The overnight raid targeted a building in Atmey, a densely populated town near the Turkish border where tens of thousands of people displaced by the country's decade-long war live. The special forces raid is said to have targeted the current little-known leader of ISIS, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi, a uh, displaced Syrian who lives uh, a, a block away from the site of the attack, Abu Fahed 
Al-Hamzi told Al Jazeera that his family was awoken in the early hours. We woke up at 1 a.m. to the sound of helicopters, and then at around 3 a.m. we heard a barrage of attacks, he said. We saw a house that was targeted and damaged roads, but we still have no idea what was going on. Residents said the helicopters were hovering over the buildings for more than two hours before attacking it. The U.S. Special Forces then carried out a landing operation and stormed the house. Mahmoud Shahadi, who lives nearby, said the U.S. forces had surrounded the targeted building and used loudspeakers to call on its residents in Arabic, telling them to leave the area and that they would be unharmed if they did. Witnesses told a Syrian journalist who uh, contributes to The New York Times that the loudspeaker voice said, quote, those who want to take part in jihad come out. Everyone will be safe if you surrender. Those who remain will die, they warned. Shahadi told uh, Al Jazeera when the operation ended, we went to the area and saw a woman who apparently detonated an explosive vest. And inside the building, we saw some bodies, including that of a man and a child, Uh, The Times reports that for families living on the outskirts of the town, uh, the raid made for a night of fear and left a house full of dead neighbors that they said they had never really known. The Syrian Civil Defense, a volunteer rescue group operating in rebel-held parts of Syria, also known as the White Helmets, said in a statement that at least 13 people were killed, including four women. Local activists and residents quoted by news agencies said fighters in the area clashed with U.S. forces. The Pentagon initially did not give any details about the raid, but said that it was uh, that the mission, quote, was successful. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said overnight, quote, U.S. Special Operations Forces under the control of U.S. Central Command conducted a counterterrorism mission this evening in northwest Syria. There were no U.S. casualties, he said, and that more information would be provided as it becomes available. Well, that uh, information was uh, given early on Thursday morning by President Biden, who offered a few more details in brief remarks at the White House early on Thursday after he and Vice President uh, Vice President Harris are said to have monitored the full uh, more than two hour special forces raid in real time from the White House Situation Room overnight. Here was the president Thursday morning. Last night, operating on my orders, the United States military forces successfully moved a major terrorist threat to the world, the global leader of ISIS, known as Haji Abdullah. He took over as leader of ISIS in uh, 2019 after the United States counterterrorism operation killed al-Baghdadi. Since then, ISIS has directed terrorist operations targeting Americans, our allies and our partners, and countless civilians in the Middle East, Africa, and in South Asia. Haji Abdullah oversaw the spread of ISIS-affiliated terrorist groups around the world after savaging communities and murdering innocents. He was responsible for the recent brutal attack on a prison in northeast Syria holding ISIS fighters which was swiftly addressed by our brave partners in the Syrian Democratic Forces. He was the driving force behind the genocide of the Yazidi people in northwestern Iraq in 2014. We all remember the gut-wrenching stories, mass slaughters that wiped out entire villages, 
Thousands of women and young girls sold into slavery. Rape used as a weapon of war. And thanks to the bravery of our troops, this horrible terrorist leader is no more. Our forces carried out the operation with their signature preparation and precision, and I directed the Department of Defense to take every precaution possible to minimize civilian casualties. Knowing that this terrorist had chosen to surround himself with families, including children, we made a choice to pursue a special forces raid at a much greater risk than our, to our own people, rather than targeting him with an airstrike. We made this choice to minimize civilian casualties. Our team is still compiling the report, but we do know that as our troops approach to capture the terrorist, in a final act of desperate cowardness, he, with no regard to the lives of his own family or others in the building, he chose to blow himself up, not just to the vest, but to blow up that third floor, rather than face justice for the crimes he has committed, taking several members of his family with him, just as his predecessor did. I'm grateful for the immense courage and skill and determination of our U.S. forces, who skillfully executed this incredibly challenging mission. The members of our military are the solid steel backbone of this nation, ready to fly into danger at a moment's notice to keep our country and the American people safe, as well as our allies. And I'm also grateful to the families of our service members. You serve right alongside yours these soldiers and sailors, Marines, Special Forces, the loved ones, giving them the strength and support they need to do what they do. To our service members and their families, we're forever grateful for the, what you do for us, and we owe you a debt. Thank you. We're also aided by the essential partnership of the Syrian Democratic Forces. I want to commend our dedicated intelligence community, the Department of Defense, and members of our national security team throughout the government whose meticulous and tireless work over the course of many months ensured that this mission succeeded. This operation is testament to America's reach and capability to take out terrorist threats no matter where they try to hide anywhere in the world. I'm determined to protect the American people from terrorist threats, and I'll take decisive action to protect this country. And we'll continue working with our close allies and partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Iraqi Security Forces, including the Kurdish Peshmerga, and more than 80 members of the Global Coalition to keep pressure on ISIS to protect our homeland. We remain vigilant. We remain prepared. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield, and it sent a strong message to terrorists around the world. We will come after you and find you. Once again, today, we continue our unceasing effort to keep the American people safe and to strengthen the security of our allies and partners around the world. I want to thank you all, and may God bless you, and may God protect our troops. President Biden speaking this morning from the White House about the overnight raid by special forces uh, in the northwestern part of Syria that is said to have killed uh, ISIS's uh, current leader. You'll note there was a, a sort of a, a, a one uh, conflicting detail uh, from the president who seemed to refer to the, uh, the the man who was killed as having a suicide vest, an explosive vest, whereas Al Jazeera reports uh, from witnesses on the ground that a woman was wearing one. We've seen a number of uh, conflicting details, uh, you know, uh, appearing in the days and months that follow some of these reports um, in recent years 
years from uh, several administrations going back uh, where we learn a different story uh, several months down the line than we were given initially. And I think uh, Jen Psaki was asked uh, by reporters about some yes, of that um, today. I, I will say that the reporters uh, acquitted themselves well in the both the White House press briefing and later on Air Force One. They asked and pressed the White House and uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki to provide evidence uh, what? Of, of what happened. And they said, you know, do you have any evidence to prove that, that this is how the outcome mm-hmm. came about? And and, uh, and of course, they they didn't have any at this time. Uh, good, glad to hear that uh, media are pressing for uh, evidence uh, of of these details. U.S. led coalition operations against remnants of ISIS sleeper cells are more frequent in northeastern Syria under the control of the Kurdish led Syrian Democratic Forces. Al Jazeera reports for years the U.S. military has also used drones to kill top Al Qaeda operatives in northern Syria, where the fighter groups group uh, became active over the course of the Syrian civil war that began as a mass uprising against President Bashar al-Assad, but quickly morphed into a full-fledged conflict. The latest raid was the largest carried out by the U.S. in the province since the attack in 2019 that targeted and killed then-ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. It came a week after U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin issued a directive ordering military leaders to do more to protect civilians from harm in drone attacks and other combat operations. The U.S. military has come under renewed pressure, says Al Jazeera, to reform its policies following an August strike that killed 10 members of a family in Afghanistan, including several children. Thus, last night's attack with special forces rather than an airstrike, as Biden referenced in his remarks. Uh, That following a December investigation by The New York Times, which concluded based on a trove of confidential Pentagon documents that U.S. air wars in the Middle East have marked have been marked by, quote, deeply flawed intelligence and faulty targeting. That has resulted in the deaths of more than 1,000 civilians over the past decade. So, uh, yeah, with everything going on in this uh, this country right now, and of course with tensions continuing to ratchet up with Russia on the border of Ukraine, the so-called global war on terror continues. It keeps going and going and and going. going. Yes. So uh, so does, by the way, the U.S. war on COVID, which we haven't had time to mention in a few days. In that battle, we've got both good and bad news today. You may recall a few weeks ago on the show, we told you that if you could just hang on a few more weeks, that the then skyrocketing Omicron, if it followed the science seen elsewhere in South Africa and the U.K. and even New York at the time, which had been among the first states to get hit, hit hard by the uh, the new variant, that it would soon begin to fall as quickly as it shot up to dwarf the other uh, the surges of all of the other previous variants, at least in terms of cases and that it would then begin to fall just as quickly and swiftly. Well, that has, in fact, 
now happened in the majority of states. At least it has begun to happen. It is still rising in several states, most notably in the Northwest, in Washington State, Idaho, Montana, and up in Alaska, as well as in the Northeast, in Maine, of all places. But while Omicron is finally waning in terms of infections in the U.S., uh, infection rates are still higher in almost all places than they were at the peak of last winter's deadly surge and the death toll now from Omicron, that unfortunately is still on the rise pretty much everywhere at the moment. New cases are plunging from their unprecedented heights just a couple of weeks ago, but the U.S. overall is now averaging just under 425,000 new cases per day. That is still a lot of new cases, but it is down precipitously from over 750,000 per day. Good Lord. Just two weeks ago. So that is a very it's you know still really high, but it is a very quick fall. And if it continues as expected, that would be very good news. And for the first time since the Omicron wave set in, almost the entire country is sharing in that improvement. Average daily cases have fallen over the past two weeks in all but those five states that I mentioned previously. Maryland and Washington, D.C. currently have the lowest rates of COVID spread in the country, each with fewer than 45 cases per 100,000 people. New York and New Jersey are not far behind. Those were the states that were hit earliest in this particular wave. Alaska, meanwhile, has the country's biggest outbreak right now with 310 cases per 100,000 people. Most of the states in the nation are still well above 100 cases per 100,000 people. So there's still a long way to go, but improvement is happening and it's happening quickly now, at least when it comes to infections. Nonetheless, deaths are still on the rise. The virus is still killing roughly 2,600 Americans per day on average. 2,600. For those of you who enjoy downplaying the virus and its Omicron variant for whatever reason that you believe it is wise to downplay it, it is still killing, on average, roughly a 9-11 disaster each and every day of Americans. As we continue into our third year of the worst public health crisis in more than 100 years, but sure, downplay it all you like. Uh, that, of course, is due to, uh, due to two things. Deaths the death rate rising, that's always the last number to move in any wave. And so it's no surprise that Omicron deaths are accumulating now, even as cases are falling rapidly from unprecedented heights. But the vast majority of deaths happening right now were almost entirely preventable. The overwhelming majority of people dying from COVID, sadly, were unvaccinated people. The risk of dying today from COVID is 60 times higher for unvaccinated people than it is for people who are vaccinated and boosted, according to the CDC. A more recent study in the UK suggested that a booster cuts the death, the risk of death by about 95 percent compared to being unvaccinated. Hospitals remain hard hit around the country, thanks largely to the unvaccinated who are still, by the way, crowding out others who need treatment 
for emergencies like heart attacks and automobile accidents and cancer treatments. Hospitalization is currently 16 times higher for unvaccinated adults aged 18 and older than it is for those who are fully vaccinated. For uh, the unvaccinated who are aged 12 to 17, it is eight times higher than for those who are uh, uh, vaccinated. Hospitalization rates, if you're 50 and older, is 18 times higher if you are unvaccinated and uh, 50 years of age or older. But, and it's worth repeating, the risk of dying right now remains 60 times higher for those who are unvaccinated. So, yes, please, please get your shots. And please, if you haven't, get your booster. Yeah, because remember... The vaccine helps reduce your risk of hospitalization, which helps reduce the risk to your community that the medically vulnerable will not be able to get a hospital bed because of an unvaccinated person also needing that bed. Cases still need to decline a lot more in order to reach what we would consider safe levels of transmission. But if the current rapid descent in most places continues and as long as another New variant doesn't spring up and wreak havoc. The uh, U.S. could soon be back to a relatively safe place akin to the one we experienced last year before the rise of Delta and, of course, the devastating rise of Omicron. So, as noted, some uh, both good news and bad there for you. And now uh, for a bit of what I think is pretty unabashedly good news overall, at least for American democracy, picking up on the good news that we reported at the end of the program yesterday regarding the good news for both Democrats and democracy itself, as least at least as I currently see it in New York state, uh, where the state legislature following the 2020 census and the uh, growth among minority residents in the state approved new redistricting maps for Congress to be used over the next decade in the Empire State. That that new map is likely to add as many as three new Democrats to the state's U.S. House delegation. Well, that in what state Democrats describe as an appropriate response to the growth in its minority population and what Republicans in New York describe as an outrageous partisan gerrymander, the likes of which they have never before seen. Because apparently they, I guess, don't read newspapers or they watch only the pretend news over at Fox, so they haven't noticed what GOP-controlled states like, oh, I don't know, Ohio and North Carolina and Alabama and Tennessee and Texas, just to name a few, have done to their new maps in recent weeks, where Texas, for example, uh, which, is had, which is adding two new House seats because of its population growth over the past 10 years, almost 100% of that growth thanks to growth in the black and Hispanic populations. And they are actually, in response, adding two new white majority districts and removing entirely several minority voting districts. I wonder if the Republicans up in New York are as furious about what's going on in Texas as they are in their own state. Thankfully, though, courts in Ohio and North Carolina and even Alabama in recent days have rejected the partisan gerrymandered GOP maps and are forcing new maps to be drawn in those states, which, for example, in Alabama will most likely be required to add a second black majority district. 
In Ohio, the GOP's redistricting was so egregious, both in its new maps and its old ones used over the past 10 years, that the new maps being ordered now by the uh, have, have being that the the ones they've drawn after the 2020 census have been nixed by the state Supreme Court, which is ordering new maps after uh, Buckeye State voters had voted uh, back in 2015 by more than 70 percent that districts in the state should reflect the statewide partisan voting habits of, you know, the longtime battleground state, which is, you know, kind of 50-50, leaning Republican, but close to 50-50. So the Supreme Court looked at that, looked at what the voters decided back in 2015 and said, no, you got to redraw these maps. And that could mean that there will be at least three new Democratic leaning districts uh, for the U.S. House in Ohio. So with all of that said, here is the new good news for fans of American democracy uh, that we can add uh, to all of that today. This time in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court will draw a new state congressional district map after the state's Democratic governor, Tom Wolf, and the GOP-controlled Pennsylvania legislature got deadlocked over the map that was drawn by the Republicans. Though the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court had been poised to take over the redistricting process amid the stalemate between the governor and the legislature, the state Supreme Court used its authority on Wednesday to bypass the lower court to prevent, quote, protracted appeals that could derail the state's election calendar, According to the high court's order, the Pennsylvania primaries are currently scheduled for May. Under the new order from the state Supremes, the lower Commonwealth Court judge, Patricia McCullough, will serve as a special master to put together a proposal for a new map based on, quote, findings of fact and conclusions of law, plus a report backing up her recommendations. Both documents must be filed to the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania by this Monday. Uh, so this is moving very quickly. And then all parties in the case will uh, have one week to respond. Judge McCullough's proposal is not binding and the high court can ultimately draw the map however they see fit. While the Supreme Court's state Supreme Court's order doesn't necessarily mean game over for Pennsylvania Republicans gerrymandering efforts there, they only have a few apparently long shot options left to keep fighting. That, according to Ben Geffen, a staff attorney who works on voting rights at the Public Interest Law Center in Philadelphia and is representing voting rights groups in the case. He was also involved in the 2018 Pennsylvania Supreme Court battle over gerrymandering. As a legal matter, Geffen told TPM today, quote, I do think the Pennsylvania Supreme Court will have the final say in this case. Republicans could try to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. But yeah, good luck with that. As you'll recall, the Supremes back in 2019 said that federal courts must stay out of partisan gerrymandering cases. In this case, however, the argument would be somehow that the Democratic governor, Tom Wolf does not have the authority to veto the Republicans' maps. Geffen said, uh, however, that they would be, quote, asking to unwind a century of precedent, and that's a tall ask. 
Meanwhile, Judge McCullough, who is being named the special master to draw up a map and a file uh, reporting uh, back on uh, Monday, is the judge who was overseeing the court battle over the map before the Supremes took over in this new order that was issued on Wednesday. She is part of the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court's GOP majority. By way of contrast, the Supreme Court in the state has a Democratic majority of five to two. Nonetheless, Geffen said he doesn't expect a partisan outcome from the case, given how the district map that the high court established back during the 2018 case, he regards that as a, quote, by any measure, a fair map. At the time, there were complaints about it from both Republicans and Democrats, but it resulted, as I recall, in at least one Democratic majority uh, district being added at the time. Geffen said, I don't think there's any reason to radically change their approach. The order stated that the court will then hear arguments over McCullough's proposal on February 18 before the justices make their final decision. So, yeah, I think we are looking at... More good news for American democracy in another very closely divided state, yet one where Republicans in the state legislative majority, well, they had gerrymandered it for years. And that is now finally, maybe, hopefully getting sorted out to reflect the actual partisan leadings of the actual voters in the state. Imagine that. Yeah. So hopefully good news and uh, more Good, I think, news for the planet coming up next at the U.S. Postal Service of all places, which is still under con under the control for some reason of Donald Trump's very corrupt postmaster general. And Desi Doyen's Green News Report, that's also ahead, which is always good news, even when it's bad news, if only because she is never <laughs> corrupt in any way, shape or form. All right, quick break, and we're back. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. Well done. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. This is just, this is... So, Desi, you're going to mention <laughs> this story. This just kind of blows my mind. Uh, Desi is going to mention this story a little bit in her uh, Green News report shortly, but I think it deserves much more attention than, uh, obviously, we will have time for in our six-minute GNR. Uh, Which is jam-packed with all kinds of other, other stories, stuff too. As yes. well, yeah. Uh, because this could or should have a huge impact on greenhouse gas emissions in this country for decades at this point. Uh, so from this sort of mind-bending exclusive at Washington Post yesterday, the Biden administration launched a, launched a last-minute push on Wednesday to derail the U.S. Postal Service's plan to spend billions of dollars on a new fleet of gasoline-powered delivery trucks, citing the damage the, po the polluting vehicles could inflict on the climate and Americans' health. 
could inflict <laughs> the uh, dispute over the Postal Service's plan to spend up to $11.3 billion on as many as 165,000 new delivery trucks over the next decade has major implications for President Biden's goal of converting all federal cars and trucks to clean power. Postal Service vehicles make up a, uh, a third of the government's fleet. And the EPA warned the agency uh, last fall that its environmental analysis of the contract rested on flawed assumptions and missing data. Well, there is a shock. The agency that is still <laughs> headed up by Donald Trump's corrupt postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, Produced a flawed environmental analysis? What? Really? Who could have possibly guessed that? The EPA and the White House Council on Environmental Quality sent letters to the Postal Service on Wednesday that urge it to reconsider plans to buy mostly gas-powered vehicles and conduct a new, more thorough analysis. The EPA also asked the post office to hold a public hearing. Oh, that would be nice on its fleet modernization plans, a request that the agency had rejected when California regulators made that same request back in January. The Postal Service's proposal, as currently crafted, represents a crucial lost opportunity to more rapidly reduce the carbon footprint of one of the largest government fleets in the world. According to Vicky Arroyo, the EPA's Associate Administrator for Policy. Transportation, of course, is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and even rising sales of electric vehicles have yet to make a dent in those uh, greenhouse emissions. Electric vehicle proponents had hoped that the Postal Service would purchase a huge fleet of electric vehicles, and that would provide a boost for the industry. While policymakers agree that the Postal Service's aging and unsafe fleet is due for an upgrade, the question of how to do it has fueled a fight <laughs> between Postmaster General DeJoy, a major Donald Trump donor and a holdover from the last administration, and Biden officials, as well as environmental groups, state regulators, and the United Auto Workers Union. Basically, everybody is aligned against the U.S. Postal Service and Louis DeJoy and their choice to do this, except for the company that they've contracted to build them. Which I'm getting to next here because this <laughs> blows me. De so DeJoy oversaw the agency's decision to award the contract, the truck contract, this huge contract, $11.3 billion um, to Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense. A military contractor? Yes, a military contractor. I went to their website from the front page uh, under a photo of a dude in combat gear in front of a convoy of huge, heavy Oshkosh uh, semi-trucks. The text says, Your mission, our honor. At Oshkosh Defense, we stand behind those who dedicate their lives to protecting others. As the global leader in the design, production, and sustainment of military vehicles and mobility systems, we strive to exceed our customers' ever-changing needs. We operate with unparalleled commitment to those who depend on our products and services worldwide to perform their missions and return home safely. 
sure, let's have them build the build these uh, lightweight little postal delivery trucks. The uh, Oshkosh Defense lists their uh, the ve- their, the vehicle ca- categories that they make on their uh, front page of their site: light tactical vehicles, medium tactical vehicles, heavy tactical vehicles, MRAPs, which are mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, and AARFs, aircraft rescue firefighting vehicles, all heavily armed and I suspect not particularly fuel efficient in any way. Nothing at all on the front page about lightweight Postal Service mail delivery trucks. Yeah. Notice anything missing from that list? Electric vehicles. Yep. Not a word about it. I I did a search, by the way, on the site for USPS or Postal Service. Nothing. Nothing Mm. at the site. So, yeah, they're a military contractor. Of course, the Trump administration's postmaster general would give them this contract rather than, oh, I don't know, Detroit. One of the American uh, car companies, one of the car companies that is already knows how to make electric vehicles. So DeJoy signed off on this. It gets this gets crazier. (laughs) He signed off on a plan uh, to replace the uh, USPS's fleet of, of, of tens of thousands of trucks. The plan calls for just 10 percent. Of the, again, 165,000 new mail delivery trucks, just 10% of them to be electric. And the plan would offer only a 0.4 mile per gallon fuel economy improvement over the agency's current fleet, which is nearly 30 years old. So this 30-year-old fleet is going to be replaced by a fleet that improves the uh, MPG by 0.4 miles per gallon. I mean, even if they went with all gas uh, uh, trucks here, you mean to tell me that in 30 years they could only figure out how to improve uh, fuel efficiency by 0.4 miles per gallon? It's not like the existing trucks were wildly fuel efficient and there was just nothing to improve on because guess what? The old trucks that we've been using for the past 30 years... Any idea how many uh, miles per gallon they get? Do you know the answer to this question? I'm going to let you say it. 10 miles per to the gallon. 10 miles to the gallon is what they uh, the current trucks get over the past 30 years. But don't worry, we're improving that by 0.4 miles per gallon. So they'll get 10.5, maybe, if we're if lucky. If we're lucky on a good day. When asked why the uh, service was not buying more electric vehicles, DeJoy said it couldn't afford them. Now, the objections from the Biden EPA here to the current plan that was signed off last year, reportedly, uh, took senior postal leaders by surprise. The governing board there was largely unaware of any problems or tension around the environmental impacts of these trucks. That, according to three people involved with the contract who spoke to the Post on condition of anonymity, the House, U.S. House, plans to vote in coming days on uh, legislation that would relieve the Postal Service of much of the debt that it carries, which exceeds some $200 billion. Now, uh, the Post doesn't mention this, and neither does the New York Times in covering this story, but the reason the Postal Service has $200 billion in debt is because years ago, Republicans forced the USPS, unlike every other company in the world, 
force them to fully fund their pensions years in advance, which has uh, for years now crippled the uh, service's ability to spend on just about anything. And the individuals who spoke to the Post apparently said post office officials privately worry that a fight over its environmental record uh, could lead uh, congressional Democrats to delay the vote to um, uh, relieve them of that $200 billion in debt. The agency would not say how much money it has already sent to Oshkosh, though the EPA's letter notes that it awarded the contract, quote, and, and funded as much as $482 million to the vendor so far before conducting an environmental analysis, which is what they say is exactly what the Council on Environmental Quality regulations prohibit. And by the way, this is exactly what we just had a story last week where a federal judge came in and canceled uh, the, uh, uh, the the sale, uh, lease, uh, the, the, the lease, the lease sales, the world's largest offshore shore uh, lease yeah. sale in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, right? Oil and gas uh, 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 leases out there because the Trump administration failed to do, or basically gamed the environmental analysis they did before the Biden administration was then ordered by a judge to carry out the lease sale anyway. And so we have the National Environmental Policy Act to thank for this, known as NEPA for short. Um, that is something that Republicans have been trying to dismantle and destroy and repeal if they can get their hands on it, uh, because that is the thing, that is the statutory law that requires agencies to go through these environmental analyses and gives the environmental groups and organizations, yeah. the, the 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 data basis in order to sue to block these kinds of ridiculous, environmentally damaging, climate damaging choices. Apparently it requires them to go through these environmental analyses, but it doesn't require them to do them in any way correctly or as per the law. True, it doesn't, but it does provide the avenue for, for that kind of accountability. To go in and sue, yeah. Uh, but this this gets crazier. It the, gets the worse. Post, yes, it does. The Postal Service once bragged that it could convert all of these new gas-powered vehicles to a battery electric drivetrain with taxpayer funding down the road at some point. But you'll be shocked to learn they have since backed off those claims. I wonder why. Representatives from Oshkosh, which has little experience building electric vehicles for civilians, by little do they mean none, uh, they declined to answer any questions about the postal procurement, citing a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, yes, that's right. That would be a non-disclosure agreement for a huge public government contract. Really? Uh, apparently. In its public comments, the EPA questioned why the Postal Service had assumed in its economic and climate study that battery and gas prices would remain the same decades from now and overestimated the amount of greenhouse gas emissions produced by electricity powering plug-in vehicles. Yes, I wonder why they would have done that. <laughs> I mean, not only are the gas prices not the same decades from now, they're not the same as they were two months ago, for Christ's sake. True. The EPA also criticized the mail agency for basing its analysis of electric vehicles on current charging infrastructure, which is in a nascent stage, and for only considering either shifting to an entirely electric fleet or switching over just 10 percent of its delivery vehicles. All it, or nothing. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Yes. 
The Postal Service's own analysis, meanwhile, showed that about 95% of mail carrier routes could be electrified without any problems. The Postal Service's draft analysis, quote, presents biased cost and emissions estimates that favor gas-powered vehicles. The EPA wrote, urging postal officials to revise their calculations. The mail agency largely disregarded that advice, barely changing its final assessment that was released, released in December. John Walk, who directs the Clean Air Project at National Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, said there were just pages and pages of detailed economic and environmental analysis by the EPA that the Postal Service just ignored or dismissed with a rhetorical wave of its hands. DeJoy included new vehicle purchases in his 10-year plan for the agency, which lengthens mail delivery time to save money while raising the cost of postage. The Postal Service, meanwhile, is flush with cash right now. It reported $24 billion currently, right now, in liquidity, thanks to emergency pandemic funding from Congress at the end of fiscal 2021. The new gas-powered trucks, well, this is going to be good for postal carriers. They would be air-conditioned, unlike the uh, 30-year-old ones they've been using for years. But with the air conditioning running, they would average just 8.6 miles per gallon. Electric vehicle experts said the industry standard for a gas-powered fleet uh, vehicle is between 12 and 14 miles per gallon. So DeJoy's plan, who pretends to be so worried that the UPS doesn't have enough money, would be more costly than even the average industry standard. Because of the cost of fuel. Without a major improvement in their fuel economy, the new Oshkosh trucks are expected to burn about 110 million gallons of gas each year. Although that is an 18 percent drop in fuel consumption compared to the current 30 year model, as long as it's not too hot out, requiring them to use the air condition. And yes, it will be hot out thanks to global warming caused by idiots like Louis DeJoy. EPA estimates show the greenhouse gas emissions from the Postal Service's new gas-powered trucks would total nearly 20 million metric tons over the vehicle's projected lifespan, roughly equaling the annual emissions from 4.3 million passenger vehicles. Environmental groups questioned the service's claim that the electric Oshkosh trucks could only travel 70 miles per charge. <laughs> this is one of the reasons they said, well, we have uh, our, our many of our routes are longer than that. But a uh, the market for commercial electric vehicles right now, even though it is still young, most of the electric delivery vans that are being snapped up by the Postal Service's competitors right now have a range of well over 100 miles. DeJoy initially tried to counter critics' claims by saying that Oshkosh's gas-powered trucks could be retrofitted later, converting them into electric vehicles, even touting the technology to a house panel just last year. But the Postal Service has backed away from that strategy. Yeah, they don't talk about that anymore. Saying they, quote, have no plans to retrofit 
any vehicles. Surprise! And remember, this is this is a huge difference in neighborhood levels of air pollution. Mm. Not just for, you know, the postal workers who have to drive these vans that they have to sit in for, you know, hours and hours a day. With Currently, re- with the doors open well, yeah, but and even the, with the new ones, they will in. still yeah. also be exposed to air pollution yep. every day from those vehicles if the U.S. Postal Service goes with these, uh, these gas-powered, terrible mileage vehicles, but also for your neighborhood. So, you know, it's important to reduce it in your neighborhood as well. One last point here. The Postal Service since back, has, has also backtracked on its uh, initial plans for the fleet. It has retooled its public relations campaign. But in the fall, it ran ads in outlets like Time magazine showing a lush forest with the line, quote, new routes to a sustainable world. We're committed, they said, to building a new fleet for a better environment with more fuel-efficient vehicles driving by cutting-edge technologies, the ad said, directing readers to a website for more info on the trucks. But that site barely discusses the new fleets. Uh, New fleet, it says, quote, American business is changing and USPS is changing with it. That fuel efficient, those fuel efficient vehicles driving by cutting edge technologies will improve, be improving uh, fuel efficiency by 0.4 miles per gallon, unless something changes here. Please make it so, EPA. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyne in the Green News Report. Yep. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's 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 like we are living in two separate worlds. <laughs> you know, one world where uh, the U.S. government, some you know, Donald Trump flunky, can uh, purchase one hundred and sixty-five thousand yeah. new gas-powered trucks, while the rest of us are looking at this climate emergency, going, "What the hell are we doing?" I can't even ponder the idea of of buying that many new gas-powered trucks at this late stage of our climate emergency. I agree. Man. Uh, Oh, speaking of emergencies, uh, I understand that much of the Midwest is getting hit by uh, some pretty bad weather. Yes, it's a sprawling storm from West Texas to Maine. Y'all be careful out there. It's dangerous conditions. Is power staying on in Texas so far? Uh, it's actually doing okay, pretty much. It's uh, it's being tested. It's a little wobbly. There's about, oh, I don't know, 100,000 people or so without power right now. So but far. So far. That after Governor Greg Abbott down in Texas promised us last year, after the power went out for days, that he could absolutely promise <laughs> that would never happen again. Yes, yes, he did promise that. 
And it's happening again. Anyway, more details on that in the future. For now, our latest Green News Report. The longer the stove is on, the more pollution it emits. Yup, but even when your gas stove is off, it's still polluting. New report finds... Massive chemical plant fire in North Carolina forces thousands to evacuate, plus... Only a third have been plugged with cement. The rest are leaking harmful chemicals into fields and water sources, including methane and benzene, both known carcinogens. Interior Department gives out billions to states to clean up millions of abandoned oil and gas wells. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Today's snarky comment, courtesy of Yale's James Hamblin, who tweets, So we're all supposed to prepare for blizzard conditions just because the scientific establishment and media say so? And anyone who says it will be sunny and 70 is canceled? All I'm saying is, lots of money changing hands in the snow shovel industry. Do your own meteorology. Well played, James. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, yet another chemical plant fire. This seems to happen constantly, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, it does. Thousands of residents in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, were forced to evacuate due to a massive chemical fire that erupted Monday night at a fertilizer plant near their homes. Firefighters were forced to abandon the out-of-control blaze and remain at least a mile away because of the risk of a massive explosion. And officials warned residents to wear masks to protect from the toxic fumes. There you go. Big mask wins again. Speaking of air pollutants, a new Stanford study has found that gas stoves are much worse for the climate than previously thought. Researchers discovered that gas stoves and ovens release climate warming nitrogen dioxide and methane in amounts equivalent to the greenhouse gas emissions of half a million cars, even when the appliances are not in use. They also found that the pollutants build up inside homes more quickly than previously understood. Mm. That study builds on a growing body of research showing that the gas emitted from stoves and ovens not only contributes to global warming, but also exposes millions of Americans to harmful pollutants that cause respiratory illnesses like asthma and cardiovascular disease. Research shows that children who live in a home with a gas stove have a 20% increased risk of developing respiratory illness. Really? In an interview with NPR, Drexel University epidemiologist Josiah Kephart said he's getting rid of his to eliminate the source of pollution right inside his house. It's our highest family priority to get it out and to get it an electric stove. The natural gas industry is fighting to block the growing number of cities and states that are working to phase out the use of natural gas in homes and buildings in order to reduce emissions and protect public health. I bet they are. The good news is there are solutions to reduce indoor air pollution. We'll link to them at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. And it matters, because a new study warns that parts of the world suitable for growing crops like coffee, cashews, and avocados will change dramatically as the world heats up, according to a new study. Coffee, cashews, and avocados are like three of my favorite things, man. Climate disruption is already costing the U.S. dearly. A different analysis found that crop insurance payouts for U.S. drought and flood-related crop losses have more than tripled since 1995. 
But some good news. The Biden Interior Department has released to the states the first round of billions in federal funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to create jobs by cleaning up abandoned oil and natural gas wells, which are a source of methane. The EPA estimates that there are three million abandoned wells across the U.S., and two-thirds of them are leaking pollutants into the air and water. Wow. Methane is known as a super pollutant because it is 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide in the short term. The infrastructure bill directs $5 billion to orphaned well cleanup and $11 billion for abandoned coal mine reclamation. If you're counting, that's more than $15 billion of taxpayer dollars that went to profits for the fossil fuel industry mm. because they were able to socialize the costs. Because they abandoned the wells, let them leak, and didn't clean it up themselves. Yep. Finally, the Biden Environmental Protection Agency has launched a last-minute push to derail a plan by U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy to spend $11 billion replacing the Postal Service's aging delivery fleet with gas-powered delivery trucks instead of electric. The EPA cited the damage that the polluting vehicles could inflict on the climate and public health. The fleet is one of the largest government fleets in the world, and transportation is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. So the push could make a big difference. Stop these new fossil fuel postal trucks. Really? For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple, Google, or Amazon Podcasts, but not at Spotify. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yes, wait. <laughs> Wait. Indeed. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can always download any of them and all of them for free at bradblog.com, a service made possible by those of you kind enough to help us stay on your public airwaves with a quick stop at bradblog.com slash donate. Yes, we are 100% listener-supported. Nicole Sandler is in for us on the next thrilling broadcast because I get to have oral surgery, but <laughs> uh, I hear she's got a hot interview. Oh, good. Uh, so you'll want to tune in for that. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. I will see you there. Until we see you here again next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Well, yeah.